Well, good morning. I noticed that the pulpit is just so close to the edge today. <laughs> Gotta watch out not to overreach my boundaries, push my limits. I'd like to turn our attention to John 3, 3 16 and 17 today, this morning. We're going to break our normal sequence of our study in 1 Thessalonians and shift our focus more on the gospel, gospel of God's love today. We're also going to break our normal pattern. The sermon isn't going to be, strictly speaking, exegetical, uh, more of a contemplative reflection, contemplative exposition of the text. And then we'll break the bread afterwards. John 3:16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. A few points I'd like to cover today in this sermon. I'd like to talk to you about what is the foundation, what is that we find as our only hope behind the gospel of Christ. It is the love of God. It is the love of God. And a few points that I'd like to cover today is that the love of God is the source of our hope. The source of our hope. The love of God is the source of our hope and faith. Secondly, is that the love of God is the power. Power for our living. Power for our faith. Power for our sanctification. It is the power for our maturity, for our living. And that the love of God, thirdly, is the catalyst. It is the agent of change for us and the world around us. In the epistle to Corinthians, Corinthian church, Paul writes, For indeed, Jews seek the signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. And if I was to paraphrase it, if I may, I'd say it like this, but we preach the love of God in his Son. It is, after all, what stands behind all thoughts and actions of God. And specifically as it pertains to the world of lost men. It is what touches the hearts of men. It is what draws them to repentance. It is what brings about hope of mercy, justice, forgiveness, righteousness, and life. Now all these things the world needs. All these things the world hopes for without faith in God. But only in God, all these things can be found genuine, true, reliable, unfailing. 
Furthermore, to know the love of God and to believe in the love that God has for us is to know God himself because it is rooted in his very person. It is rooted in him. I really like the rendering of Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 and 19, the way New Life Version puts it. Somewhat radical for us. And Paul writes, I pray that Christ may live in your hearts by faith. I pray that you will be filled with love. I pray that you will be able to understand how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. I pray that you will know the love of Christ. His love goes beyond anything we can understand. I pray that you will be filled with God himself. This is why we can, we should, we must believe in God's love for us. For there is no other hope, there is no other hope that is so secure and steadfast. Why? Because it is rooted in his person. It is rooted in him. Man put their trust in him because his sovereign grace opens their eyes, opens their hearts to come to know and to believe the love of God. That very love which he has for them through Jesus. Our faith is fixed on the love of God for us. The love of God which is manifested on the cross. It causes changes in us and it promotes our obedience of faith. It promotes our worship. It causes changes in the world and leads men to repentance, to the humble submission at the foot of the cross. So what is this love like? If you refer to your uh, pamphlets, there is a little outline there. What is this love? What it's like and where does it come from? And as we just read, that God so loved the world. The love of God starts with God. Indeed, it, his love is deeper than the deepest ocean. But how could finite beings such as man ever come to wrap his mind around something so wonderful, so amazing? And I will refer to many passages today, and I will read most of them. We'll turn to a few. But in Psalm 57, David wrote, For your loving kindness is great to the heavens. Later in Psalm 108, he wrote, For your loving kindness is great above the heavens. Looks like a lot happened between those two psalms. See, it starts above the heavens. It starts with God. God makes it known to us. He alone, He alone gives life and sustains day in and day out those who are good and those who are bad. As Jesus reflected on the love of God of the Father in Matthew 5, He said, He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Who else does that? Who else favors 
the sinner. No one else but God alone. He alone cares with genuine compassion and truly understands all, all that you're going through. As it is written in the epistle to Hebrews chapter 4, Christ is not someone who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Who else can relate to every, every individual's struggle? Who can encourage every single heart? Who can shine a light of hope in the most darkest place? Who can come alongside every one of us and comfort each and every one of us? Who can understand every one of us? Who can relate to every one of us? Who is capable of doing that? No one else but God and God alone. Now surely God has a monopoly on love. But the good news is that he shares his love freely. Freely. He shares his love freely with all of his creation. Now look at this. He did not restrict his love to the fellowship of the Trinity alone. He didn't. Right? His love is outward. Even though I can imagine how easy it would be to dismiss anything and anyone else. I mean, just imagine yourself in the company of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All in one. In perfect unity. Delighting in each other. Praising each other. Sharing mutual joy. Appreciation. It just sounds so sufficient, so consuming. And believe me, in the company of God, that's how it is. That's how it is. I wouldn't want to care about anything or anyone else either if I was there. Being a selfish sinner as I am. But there's this one quality to his perfect love. It is overflowing. It is overflowing. It knows no boundaries. It flows in every direction. It cannot be contained. It's like a bursting torrent, drenching and invigorating even the driest, the hardest ground out there. It's like it's meant to soften up the rocks, even the boulders. It brings about life and life everlasting. Think of the floating rivers in spring or even the Californian aqueduct, which flows all the way from the mountains up in the north and takes the streams of water all the way down to LA, bringing all the life supporting nutrients and minerals and everything else to the fields. It promotes growth. It gives support to all which depends on it. How different it is from, from the enclosed cisterns full of stagnant waters. 
full of algae and fungus, promoting nothing but the joyful singing of the frogs, if at all. But the love of God is flowing outward because it meant to care. It meant to care and to be genuinely concerned with its creation. It is not at all lazy, self-indulgent, self-absorbed. In Matthew 6, Jesus spoke to his disciples saying, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Why? Because your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. And even in the hardest of the circumstances, we can rest assuredly and stay put. As Apostle Peter wrote, casting all our anxieties upon him. Why? Because he cares. His love cares. It is meant to care for us. And thereby, the love of God is meant to seek, to reach out. The love of God reaches the lost. Reaches the lost. As we look back at John 3, verse 16, there should be no misunderstanding of the terms here. The world to which John refers does not mean the things of the culture or the latest trends in thinking or inventions. This means the whole creation where mankind is of the highest rank, highest rank, treasured by its creator for whatever it's worth as beings made in the image of God. And so what we should really see and understand here is that God's love was not directed toward the holy angels only, those marvelous creatures who stand before God and sing praises to him with pure hearts. But on the contrary, God directed his love beyond his heavenly kingdom, down toward the lowly sons of men. Those who care not or even hostile toward him, angry at him for dealing a shorthand to them. Nevertheless, God is not taken aback by man's misery. Doesn't go like, oh, what am I going to do with all of this? Does not go back and reason away his kind intentions because of those who sin against him day by day. He's insistent, insistent on reaching the lost, reaching the sinners. Here's the mission of Jesus found in Luke 19.10. That's his mission. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. See, his love searches and seeks. His love does not grow weary until we are found. His spirit goes into the darkest recesses of this world 
with the light of the gospel into slums, into projects, into the broken families, into impoverished homes, under the bridges, into halfway houses, college campuses, prisons, wherever it takes. Jesus spoke about his love feast in Matthew 22 as he commanded his servants. He said, go therefore to the main highways and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. Surely his love does not discount even the lowliest of men. It is set on reaching the lost. It comes at a great cost. He is willing to go to whatever extent. To the utmost extent, I should say. God's love is sacrificial. Jesus, the son of man, came to seek and to bring the lost into his own marriage feast. At his own expense. At his own expense. You see, he set his mind on us before the world began. He knew what it was going to cost him. He knew. It was not only about buying us linen garments. There would be no trouble for the creator of the universe. Instead, he had to purchase life, a life eternal for each and everyone who puts his trust in him and supply of his own spirit for each one of them to be grieved by them, to groan, and to bleed for them. What is the cost of life? Life for life. Life for life. And therefore, blood for life. Blood of the God himself. His life in exchange for ours. His blood for our life. Consider the cost. Let us consider the cost. And let us consider the agony. The agony. He came to pay the price. He bore his own sentence of death on his own back to Golgotha. And let us never confuse what it really meant to Christ when he said that my disciples will deny themselves and will bear their own crosses. Just as he denied himself for the sake of the lost and bore the cross of the gospel. The gospel of our hope. He came to face disdain of man while proclaiming the hope and the goodwill of God. He came with good news to face the scorn. It reminds me, a couple of years ago, I traveled to Russia. <laughs> and I had all the good intentions and all the good attitude in me until I stepped off the plane. 
Some of you might know what it means. He came to be condemned by those who ought themselves be condemned while committing no crime and while living a perfect life of obedience to God on our behalf for us so that we may have something to show for ourselves when it comes, when time comes to give an account to God. He came to be left alone and abandoned even by his own father, even by his own father. At the right time, he came to show just to what extent he loves us. That is to the extent of his own life, infinitely precious life. It's almost as if in his own mind, he went to say, if I was a human and could actually die for you, I would do it. I would do it. And he had done it. He had done it. He actually went through with this. What a courageous, sacrificial love. It was all for our sake, for the sake of the world. He gave it all. He didn't back down. He went all out. Spared none. None of himself. And what does this bring about? God's love offers mercy and grace to the sinner. He paid the highest price sufficient to cover the sins of the whole world, as we can see. He paid it all in order that we may live forever surrounded by his loving kindness. So that we may offer the praise and the delight in him who loves us so deeply, so honestly, and so compassionately. Now, as far as the Bible shows, in the mind of God, there was no confusion as to our merits. In Genesis 6, for instance, we find that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. God brought about flood to uphold his justice. But not many things have changed since flood. The people are still as guilty as the devil himself. What's more is that they, they reject the existence of God outright, altogether. One thing is pretty clear, as we also read this morning, that the whole world lies under the verdict of hell. But somehow, contrary to what is justly due us, contrary to what you would expect, Christ did not come to execute judgment but to provide redemption for us. Provide redemption. As Apostle Peter wrote, some people tend to presume upon God's long-suffering and mercy toward them, but he is patient with them. As it's written in 2 Peter 3.9, not wishing for any to perish, 
but for all to come to repentance. And in his patience, he gives men yet another shot at life. Life in communion with him. The world had and has no hope apart from Jesus. This time he came to bring about hope of forgiveness. You see, his love does not demand, does not demand, but freely gives. The justice demands, the righteousness demands all that his love supplies through Jesus Christ on the cross. All of it. Jesus said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For God is in the business of redeeming mankind until the end of this age. These are the last days, the days of mercy, the last chance for romance, if you will. This is the ministry of Jesus, was and is and will be. This is his intent for the church, for the church, until we're lifted up. It was his mission and vision. Likewise, it is ours. So what is our aim as we reflect on this gospel? And again, if anyone ever has a question how do you preach the gospel? Is there an outline? Is there a template? Yes, it's right here. John 3.16. So many discount this verse. But it has everything you ever need. And everything for yourself and for the world. The aim of our hope is the love of God displayed on the cross. In the death of Jesus Christ for our sin. This is our assurance of hope. First off, think of the uh, following few questions. If it was only about righteousness, if it was only about righteousness, apart from the communion with God, would you be satisfied with that? You would be declared guiltless. But apart from the communion with God, would you be satisfied with that? If it was only about perfect glorified body which does not get sick or dies, yet apart from the communion with God, would you be satisfied in something like that? It was only about the riches of the heavenly kingdom given freely to you. But with no God around, would you be satisfied in that? That would be like being the best man at someone's wedding. Only concerned about how sharp you're going to look in that suit and the best place of honor and all the best food served first, but when it comes to address the, the groom and give blessings to him, you'd say, well, I really don't know what to say. I'm just here to look good, 
eat and have fun. How awkward is that? It doesn't even make sense. In reality, our faith is not rooted in any one of those things. Righteousness, self, self-righteousness, glorification, kingdom. None of these elements individually really matter. We're not simply hoping to become sinless or justified. Ultimately, we look forward to being with the God who loves us. And we trust him because we have come to know and to believe his love for us. That's it. That's it. All theological knowledge aside, the core of our hope is in Jesus who had come in the flesh and rose again upon his crucifixion in his person. And in him personally, and namely in the fact that he loves us and desires for us to be with him in the perfect fellowship and communion with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's where our hope is fixed in. And just to be clear, I'm not saying that theology or doctrinal foundation does not matter. It matters. But none of these individual elements are the gospel in and of themselves. They're part of the gospel. Part of the gospel. You see, we're called because he loves us. We're justified because he loves us. We're adopted because he loves us. And we are glorified. I was going to say will be. But we are already in his mind glorified. Because he loves us. Above all else, we should know that God saves people through his son. Not because of anything they do to deserve his pardon or favor. But because he loves them. That's why. This is the gospel that God loves us and has given us hope in his son. Everything else follows as a package. And it is granted to us through Christ. It's there already. Let me just say this, that hopes that are centered on self-improvement or self-empowerment. Oh, I need to be sanctified. I hope my justification doesn't fail. None of this None of this. Stand on its own. These are only byproducts of his love toward us. You see, those whom he called, justified, glorified, had been ultimately predestined, predestined to become his own children. His own children, right? In the likeness of his son. So that we would stand together before him in love. As John wrote, and I want you to turn there this time. First John chapter 3.
1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. Like him. Because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. Just as he is pure. You see? This is our aim. Is to abide in the love of God. The love which sets us apart and thereby sanctifies us as children of God. We're sanctified and perfected in the love of God. That is our hope and that is our aim. We cling to him because he loves us. It coaches us. What we believe about God and what we set our hopes for is what shapes us as the disciples of Christ. And so based on the assurance of hope provided by God through Jesus, we live our lives, we think our thoughts, we do our works, trusting Him, trusting in Him and His love and His good will for us. All of our decisions, all of our actions are rooted in the faith in God who loves us. Only this way may we may be perfected in his love. Only this way. When we fix our hope in him. On the fact that he loves us. Only this way we can mature as true believers and followers of Christ. Only this way we can be transformed into the image of Jesus. When we abide in his love. If, if we have truly come to know, how does this love coach us? Coach us through our Christian walk. What kind of power does it supply to us? How does it influence us? If we have truly come to know and to believe the love that God has for us, and we've truly fixed our hope and our total assurance on him, then we should live in the light of this love. We should live in the light of this love. His love for us, his love for us, not our love for us, for ourselves. Get the difference? His love for us in the light of his love, not in the light of our love for ourselves. His love for us should guide us in following Christ with all our hearts and becoming more and more like him. I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians 15. Second Corinthians. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 5. Verses 14 and 15. And Paul wrote, reflecting on his own hope in the gospel. He said, for the love of God controls us. 
controls us. It has a grip on our mind. I remember when I first got saved, I couldn't fall asleep for, for like almost two years, man. I would just go to bed and I was like, man, I can't believe this. It's unbelievable. He loves me. <laughs> he loves me. And I would contemplate on that. I would not get tired of it. It's like, I cannot believe this. <laughs> How much he loves me. You better believe it. You better believe it. And so he says, the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all. Therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. You see? There's a quality of God's love in us, that we don't no longer live for ourselves. Right? We live for others, for the lost, for the world, in likewise manner. The love of God is the heartbeat of the gospel. We've really come to know, if we have really come to know and to believe the love of God, we should be, in likewise manner, always concerned with pursuit of the lost, with the task of bringing the hope to the hopeless. Sharing the word of God, providing wise counsel, and care in time of need. Being there for the lost and the hopeless, just as our Lord was there and is there for us. For we are too lost and hopeless without Christ in our lives. He's there for us. And with that, we should be ready to give not only spare change, but whatever it takes, whatever it takes like Christ, we should learn to give more of ourselves for the sake of those who don't know the Lord. Otherwise, what is our faith? What is our faith? For it may just be so, and I want to say this very carefully. If we cannot find in ourselves that very love of God, which is outward, which cares, which reaches and seeks, which sacrifices, it is possible that what we really have come to know is the love for self. The love of self which does not go beyond oneself. It's like, a, like one of those beautiful swimming pools in the backyard. Looking good but full of chlorine. Promotes no life. It is the catalyst, it is the agent of change in the way we perceive outreach. Understanding that who we are in Christ, what hope we live by, the love of God in which we abide. The idea of Christian outreach should become natural, organic in some sense. Because it is about who we are. It is about the love of God in us. Okay. I have to wrap it up, unfortunately. I could probably go on. One last thing is that the love of God 
is the agent of change in our attitude toward the world, toward the world. Some of us might have grown weary of all the love talk, say, what about the truth? But the truth, yes, truth, in love, in love, right? It should be the whole truth, not just some things that we're so passionate about, like the holy wrath of God or total depravity of man. I mean, the things we, look, we think about, the pagan world out there, you know. Oh, those sinners. And so as we consider those who are in the world, Right? It's also quite true and quite biblical that most people out there have no knowledge of God whatsoever. No knowledge of His Word whatsoever. They got no idea about church culture whatsoever. And we should be reminded that it is also true that the love of God is patient and kind and does not seek its own benefit. We don't just collect conversion projects, projects out there in the world. We don't force convictions of faith on people, expecting them to rise up to the standards of Christian life and theology. Some of the stuff we as believers have trouble with. We can't just hammer faith into people the love of God is not a hammer, right? It's supposed to cause change, not pain, not pain. Let us not be haste for the results. Rather, seek to embrace the lost for whatever they're worth as being created in the image of God. <clears throat> At times, it means bearing patiently with the unsanctified ways of thinking, speaking, sometimes misguided outbursts of emotions and feelings, being there for people, listening to them, genuinely caring for them. Means not to rush in with condemning remarks, or passing judgments. This was the whole conflict in the Roman church which Paul addressed in Romans 2 said, but do you suppose this, O man? When you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. Catch this. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The kindness of God. Correcting with gentleness those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Now in conclusion, I'd like to say this. And once again, that there is only one hope. One hope out there. Worth living and dying for. It is the fact that our God loves us and has prepared the future for us in Christ. In Christ. This is the hope, like a precious pearl in the field. 
that God loves us. He loves us dearly in Christ. And only such hope which is rooted in the love of God leads men to deny themselves and take up their crosses. Only such hope. For they believe in the love which God has for them. And so I say to you and to myself, let us believe in God's love and rest assuredly in Christ Jesus who died for us, who died for us. Father, we thank you for your amazing love, amazing love which is unchanging, unwavering. It is pure. It gives all. It seeks us. It hovers over us. You're always there. You're always there. You always care. Father, we thank you. And I pray, Father, lift up our hearts. Lift up our hearts. And fix our hope on Christ who loves us. Lord, may all the praise be unto you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.